All those names, Teddy said, gazing at the cenotaph. All those lives. And now again. I think there is something wrong with the human race. It undermines everything one would like to believe in, don't you think? No point in thinking, she said briskly. You just have to get on with life. She really was turning into Miss Wolf. We only have one, after all. We should try and do our best. We can never get it right, but we must try. The transformation was complete. What if we had a chance to do it again and again, Teddy said, until we finally did get it right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I think it would be exhausting. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We've been away for a while, even by our standards. We've been away for a little bit. <laughs> um, a lot of life stuff has happened, which probably we'll, we'll reference. Um, but we are back. We are the world's smallest book club that reads books over 500 pages. That's our gimmick. Um, this time we have a book we're really excited to talk about me, especially it's one of my favorite living authors. Um, it's a book I actually had not read before and it, I think, I think it's Bill's first encounter with her. Um, the author is Kate Atkinson. The book is her highly acclaimed life after life, but Bill, um, it's, it's good to talk to you again. <laughs> yeah. It's been a minute, hasn't it? I mean, we've talked off a little bit, but actually, I mean, you've been really busy and I'm impressed that you still read this book. <laughs> Well, I read it about two months after I had intended to, but yeah, it yeah. turns out that moving across the country, starting a new job, and getting engaged all at the same time, you know, it takes up some time. Well, what's funny is, so, so, so last year at this time, we and my, my family, we, um, we, we, within a w about two weeks, actually, we had a car accident, we bought our little condo townhome we have now, we had a baby, <laughs> and then you and I recorded a podcast, and you graciously, we, we, we did a book that I'd already read. We did Gene Wolfe's Wizard Night, because I was like, I'm, I can't read. <laughs> I, have nothing, <laughs> I have nothing to share about any books for a while. So we're, we're kind of like, this book, is, this book is a great book. It is over 500 pages. It is you know, a, a book that I think is worth kind of attention in the way that you and I give books attention, but it's definitely, it's a more fun, readable book. Like the quote that I always have in mind is there's this great article from 2018 from my former professor, Jonathan D. And, um, he talks about, you know, um, Atkinson's exceptional reader friendliness, even though he says, you know, it's kind of a guise for deeper stuff. She is incredibly reader friendly, which we'll get into, but I think this was a good book to do in the midst of, you know, huge life changes. Yeah. I'm very grateful we were doing this and not to continue to point to our usual bugaboos, say Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. That would not have happened until October at this rate. So, yes, yeah, okay. I think this was a good choice. I agree. She's very reader friendly, even as she's doing some pretty cool and complicated stuff in this book. Yeah. And this book is maybe her most experimental. So and we'll, let's let's talk a little bit about Kate Atkinson. I, I said she's one of my favorite living writers, and, and that's true. Um, I have not read everything she's written. I've read mostly her Jackson Brody series, which is a detective series um, with the Scottish protagonist, Jackson Brody. It was made into 
a TV show. The, the British are incredibly good at um, preserving and raising the profile of their favorite literature by making it into a prestige BBC series. I don't feel like America has like the same talent for like preserving and kind of empowering their literature. Um, but she's she before that series, she was just kind of your 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 typical literary fiction writer. She came out of academia basically, and then found herself writing novels and so forth. And, and anyway, I won't get into too much. But for those who listen to the podcast. Um, you'll understand when I say that she is sort of P.D. James mixed with Muriel Spark or Penelope Fitzgerald. I mean that as the highest possible praise. And I think it's also accurate as to, as to what she's doing with genre and so forth and so on. Um, but this, is, this book is not, I think it is genre related, but it's not her mystery novels. Um, it's a really odd, <laughs> in some ways, novel about World War II, basically. So I don't know if you have anything you any, any any secret trivia about Kate Atkinson, but if not, I think we should jump into life after life recap. I tend to agree. I don't have any secret trivia about Kate Atkinson. As you've noted, this is the first book of hers I've read. I, I think you have mentioned her off and on throughout our podcast as somebody you really like. So I was excited to uh, actually dig in with one. And, and this book definitely got a lot of attention at the time. It still is getting some attention. Uh, you can find it on some you know best novels of the century list and so on. Um, all of which are, you know, doomed enterprises that aren't worth paying attention to. But in terms of are people talking about this book, yes, they are. Uh, well, and, so and like, I guess, go ahead. Re- sorry, related to her book, I guess what I wanted to say was also she is one of those authors who I think is so rare nowadays in that she is as popular as she is critically acclaimed, right? And yeah. I think that you don't you only see so many folks who they kind of, there's only so many writers out there who currently inhabit a literary space, like a truly literary kind of, form based you know approach to art and you know the novel that also end up on the new york bestseller list and she always does i mean she's a very popular novelist i'm a librarian her stuff goes out all the time we keep her old books in stock because they continue to circulate but i but at the same time she's got not one but two lengthy profiles in the new yorker one from 2018 and one from this last year, 2022. Not that that's the hallmark, you know, of great literary talents. New Yorker gets stuff wrong all the time, but it's it's becoming more and more rare, in my opinion, for someone to hold both sort of um, positions in the literary society. So she's she's interesting for that alone. I think that I'm always curious about like how is someone so like yeah reader friendly and yet so artful. Um, that's definitely my jam. I think as far as as far as a reader at least um, right now with young children. But anyway, but I think Life After Life <laughs> is her most experimental work. And so it's kind of the deep end of Kate Atkinson, um, which I'll, I'll hand it over to you to do kind of a recap. Yeah. So I would say that Life After Life is best summarized as Groundhog Day, except over the space of a life and in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, does that sound right? That's it. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. So that's the book. Uh, we could stop there, but I won't. Uh, our, our Bill Murray character is Ursula Todd, who was born in 1910 in a sort of upper middle class household. So they definitely have, you know, servants and so on, but this is not like an ancient family. Her mother comes from some of that, but her father is a, is a banker, right? Uh, She's the third child of uh, five. Sometimes that that we'll come back to that later, maybe. Uh, And uh, the book, well, the book literally opens with her in 1933 shooting Hitler. Uh, yep. That is how the book opens, uh, which we'll come back to. 
Uh, and then it goes back to 1910, she's born, her umbilical cord is wrapped around her neck, and she dies. Then it cuts to another uh, scene in 1910, the same time frame, where this time the doctor didn't get snowed in, and he managed to get there in time, and he cuts the umbilical cord. And then the book continues in this vein, where we follow one of Ursula's lives until she dies. Uh, she dies at least 15 times over the course of this novel. There are two moments which are a little more ambiguous, but I tried to count them. Uh, sometimes it is of things like the 1918 influenza epidemic, which kills her by my count four times. Uh, sometimes it's by falling out of an open window because her crummy older brother threw her doll out and she tried to chase it. Sometimes it's because she is killed in the Blitz, or actually in Germany, when the Allies are bombing Berlin. She dies a number of different ways, and each time she starts her life over, uh, usually in the first half of the book it'll start all the way back at the beginning of her life, at least for a little bit. After a while it starts jumping back to other moments, because with the implication being that everything else we've seen up to that point is probably... You can kind of infer it because you've seen how her life usually works, right? Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting is as time goes by, she starts to develop not exactly memories, but sort of deja vu or sense impressions about things to avoid. And so she manages to dodge some of the uh, accidental deaths that she otherwise would have suffered or times when somebody is going to do something cruel to her, which is going to screw up her life. She can dodge that. And so she ends up living out a series of similar but not identical lives often working in sort of, was it the home office? Is that what it's called? You know, like making sure that, like, collating reports on Blitz casualties and so on, and oftentimes doing some work to help out with in the Blitz, sometimes not. Uh, and ultimately, she ends up coming to the conclusion that what she's going to do is kill Hitler. So she, uh, at the very end of the book, sort of deliberately kills herself in one life so that she can start over a new life with enough information gathered to go out, befriend Eva Braun, get invited to Hitler's house, and kill him, uh, which she does. Well, the book then does not end, so we're going to talk more about what that means later. It's a really audacious choice, I think, to have your main character open by killing Hitler. It's one I was incredibly skeptical of when I started, and I still feel a little bit of two minds about it, uh, but most of the book is not about killing Hitler. It's just sort of the... Uh, the apotheosis of her realizing how her life works, right? Like, it's, it's not, most of the book is not about that. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely, yeah. No, I, I think the opening with Killing Hitler is a kind of perfect example of how she, among a lot of literary authors, she's just, she, she likes the genre stuff. I actually, so, so my, my old professor, Jonathan D, he calls her reader friendliness and almost her, um, her kind of genre ticks. He doesn't get into that as much. It's a different article, but they're almost like people talk about them as if they're a Trojan horse. And I've done this as well, actually. I sometimes, I sometimes do feel like she uses, you know, um, Chekhov's gun or Chekhov's going on, gun going off early as a way to like grab anyone passing by in the street, and then she gets readers that a literary kind of stylist of her. Um, level wouldn't usually get because people love guns. <laughs> 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 totally uncontroversial. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, you know what I mean? Like, you know, murder mysteries, um, yeah. action sequences, shooting Hitler, um, which is a classic sci-fi trope because we'll get into it later. In some ways, this is just a time travel novel. But so, I, so I think she's really careful with how she uses those kind of attention-grabbing plot elements yeah, kind of as Trojan horses, but actually, I, I, I think among, the, among her literary admirers, I don't think they actually appreciate how much she likes that stuff. 
you know, you don't write six detective novels or whatever it is without liking to solve mysteries. You know what I mean? Yeah. And similarly, yeah. this book, um, she's so good at creating momentum in ways that aren't necessarily plot driven, although she is at her best when there is a very concrete plot, I think, actually, even if it's very buried beneath kind of the character work. But, she, you know, she, she has the character shoot Hitler because she wants her to shoot Hitler. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not just that she thinks it'll work to kind of grab attention, although that's clearly what she's doing. Um, I think she really enjoys those kind of uh, shocking elements, you know? Um, and they're not just, they're not just, I think, loose kind of tricks. I think she actually really loves them, which I, which I actually appreciate because I also kind of love that stuff. Yeah. But no, so I, I think there's like, there's like, I feel like there's three big things we have to talk about with this book and then a lot of little things. The big thing is I actually, maybe this is going into it too quickly, but I think the form of this novel, it's a little weirder than just Groundhog Day. It's kind of, it, it has kind of that memento trick. You know what I mean? The, um, uh, yes. the Christopher Nolan film where Memento, you think Memento is just sort of a guy. Okay. He forgets everything after like five minutes, or whatever it is, or day. I can't remember what it is now. Um, five minutes. Yeah. It's like five minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he forgets everything. So you think that you're watching a film progress in a linear fashion at first and that he's just forgetting stuff and you're going to the next moment of him forgetting stuff. And then at some point you realize that actually the film is jumping between the beginning and the end, and it's progressing from the beginning and the end toward the middle, right? So it's not uh -huh. actually going from A to, to C. It's actually going from A and C to B. And there's a little bit of the same thing in this book, actually, where you think that you're going through her life or her life's. You think you're going through her life's one life after another in the same way you always do, except for this huge break where um, she, it's like it's post-World War II, you know, stuff has happened that we haven't learned about, and you th we think she kills herself, right? We think she leaves the oven open to kill herself, and then we do a whole huge, you know, a huge run through a bunch of lives in World War II, and we come back to that moment afterwards. So I, I just wanted to highlight that because I think that, like, that, that kind of formal... Um, ingenuity. It's not. It's not just that she's doing cool things with like life after life. She's even added another layer of sort of interweaving the lives. And I think actually at the end, there's an argument to be made that like she intentionally um, makes it so you can't keep tracking <laughs> like where she at, where she's at totally within regard to like remembering her own past lives. Um, and that that's correct. Right? I mean, I didn't I didn't misread that. Right? That is kind of the interweaving of the novel. Yeah. I think that's right. I. So I noticed a weird tag when when she left the stove on. I said I think it just says darkness begins to fall instead of darkness falls. I'd have to look yeah. that up again, but I think that's right. And so when I saw it, because I was tracking how many times she died because I'm morbid, and I wrote you know that was date death eight or nine, but I wrote like maybe right. Yes, exactly. And then and then we do that long, you know, calling it a flashback isn't right. It's like half the novel. <laughs> it, it is um, no, it's yeah, it's it's yeah, and it's actually it's in some ways it's the strongest part of the novel because it's the blitz heavy part of the novel. Yeah. And it's several lives. And then it goes back to like, oh, she hadn't cast herself after all. Now, I, I tend to agree with you that the most likely reading of that is she's sort of in, in that life, sort of remembering her past lives, right? As she's starting to drift off to a, a gassy demise and then didn't. But it's also possible that in that life she did kill herself and then we do some more. And then another, like, you know what I mean? And that deliberate yeah. ambiguity, I think, is, is appropriate for the novel. Um, yeah, yeah just as the novel begins with her killing Hitler 
and then that entire chapter is mimicked much later in the, at the towards the very end of the novel and probably that's a flash forward to be like look what you have to look forward to right but of course it's also possible that she's doing this cycle over and over and over again right it's oh, possible yeah. that after she kills hitler she seems to go back to again and doesn't remember as much about her past lives the deliberate ambiguity about the exact order in which these things happen is i think not unintentional and uh you know i I do tend to think that the most straightforward reading is probably correct but i think the little bit of ambiguity is appropriate and that's where i think kid atkinson is kind of rightly pegged as someone who uses these trojan horses of plot to kind of get you to go on the ride she wants you to go on but 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 the bigger point is that like she she's kind of tracking it along with you she's kind of tracking the past lives and how things have changed along with you until it gets to be too much. And then eventually she kind of throws the cards in the air a little bit and says, look, what's fun is that we get to do this again. Like, like it was yeah. fun to track it at first, but that's just the initial fun. The The higher joy is to kind of see Ursula attempt something new, right? So it's, it's and I think that's true for mystery novels too. It's like, oh, the mystery is fun, but the higher joy is to see how the human character can kind of bend toward um, compassion instead of violence after a life of their own violence. You know, I think she always does have that, that move to like a higher concept that kind of throws, throws the gimmicks away a little bit. Um, never lose track of them, but she does, I think she does always intentionally lead you along with the gimmicks and the genre plots, and then she always intentionally kind of leaves them behind or unravels them. Um, and no more, no. And this is the novel where I think she does that the most, actually. Um, but we, we, that's that's a high level thing. Let's get down a little lower. So I th- I feel like this book, there's a lot more than this. There's actually a, a middle third we can get talk to about like a, an abusive husband narrative. But I feel like it is mostly um, Ursula versus the flu, and then Ursula versus World War II. Is that is that is that accurate, Billiam? I that's most of it, except as you noted, the middle one where. Uh, something terrible happens to her when she's 16 and it throws her life into a depressive spiral where ultimately she ends up in a terribly abusive marriage. But that's like the only real part of the interwar period. We That's the only life where we spent any time really in the interwar period is the one that ends with her being beaten to death by her abusive husband. Um, some really grim stuff happens in this book, by the way. I don't think yeah. either of us are really content warning people, but like FYI, there's some stuff we're going to have to talk about, For sure. I guess. Oh, which again, um, classic Kate Atkinson. She's like making jokes one page and the next page she is sort of brutally talking about the murder of a child. Yeah, so, you know, be advised. Um, but no, I agree. It's it's mostly the her childhood in and around the First World War and then her dealing with the flu, which is really the first thing where she starts to reuse her past life knowledge to try to change things. Because what happens is at the end of World War One, of course, there's the horrible Spanish flu epidemic, right? Uh, and the Irish maid in the household and her fiancé, who is a uh, Clarence, who is a guy who fought in World War One and was terribly injured in an attack, uh, they're going to go off to London to go to the celebrations. And what happens is the first time around, they come back, they both have the flu, and then the flu immediately spreads around and kills at least Ursula, right? And then mm-hmm. the second time, uh, Ursula manages to try to delay that, but then Bridget still shows up, and the flu kills not only Ursula, but her brother Teddy, right? And then again, until finally she hits on pushing Bridget down the stairs so that Bridget will break <laughs> her leg and be unable to go to the party, so that just her fiancé will die of the flu, and Bridget herself will not die of the flu, and neither will anybody in the Todd family. Uh, which I thought might be my favorite moment in the novel is watching this, because she's about eight, I think, at this point. 
and watching, and you were like, she might straight up murder this maid. Like, not exactly because she wants to, but she's standing behind her on the top of the stairs, and like, she might end up just straight up killing this woman to save her family, and that's thankfully not quite what happens. But later, much later on in the novel, she hits on a better, uh, after she's done this, you know, 12 or 13 times, she hits on a better thing, which is to spread a false rumor that the maid's fiancé has been cheating on her, such that Bridget doesn't even go to the party, and, uh... Ursula says cryptically to her mother at this point, like, at least no one got pushed down the stairs. And Sylvie says, <laughs> well, what on earth do you mean by that? And so I like that, like, we're still, like, even as we don't go back and watch those scenes very much, it's still clear that every time we go through one of Ursula's lives, she is living through all of it again, right? Like, we yeah. skipped ahead to 1926 or whatever, because we've seen that already. But she is still living it again and sort of improving her, you know, improving her strategies to run through the run. You know what I mean? But yeah, other than, other, other than that midsection with the abusive husband, it's about the flu, which is also about teaching us that Ursula remembers something about her past lives, and then it's how she's going to deal with World War II. I agree with that. Well, and what's, what's interesting about the flu is, for me, I, I liked the early sections of her young childhood where, like, but it's, you know, it's, first of all, it's pretty gruesome, especially, like, as a parent of young children, to, like, hear uh-huh. about the, it's actually almost worse hearing about the accidental deaths, you know, like, where she drowns or she falls off the top story of the house, like that that's stuff that I I actually do worry about daily. <laughs> um and so that that was almost harder to read from like a just a parent perspective but it was also I do think the narrative energy wasn't quite locked in with the novel until we started to like fail against the flu. And not even like yeah. the second time but like the third or fourth time where she thought she had kind of figured it out and then her brothers still died and then also she still died. I thought that was actually where Kate Atkinson figured out what she wanted to do with this novel a little bit, to be honest. And it made it, I mean, I, I still think of it, even though, even though I think I think it's hard to beat the blitz sections for just like pure, and I don't know, pure virtuosic description. The, the flu part was almost my favorite because it was such a, it, it was almost, yeah, it had that glee to it too. Like the solution is to break the leg of the maid, which I, I still enjoy. Um, I also feel like, I don't know, this is maybe going to be an interesting topic because we haven't talked about this at all. I, I, the abusive hub, husband section, I actually, my interest waned again, to be honest. Like, I found it horrific and compelling in some ways, but it seemed it seemed like Ursula regressed as a character in those scenes. Um, like, like, she was still the same child who had remembered, you know, beating the flu, and then we had a more, like, um, it was just a more static narrative until we got to World War II, in my opinion. I agree with that. I think those sections are a little weaker. Um, I think they're intended to show, like, sort of her worst life in some ways, right? Completely, the life that, yes. That's the, the worst. Because she has some others that are rough, but that's definitely the one where it's the worst. And what happens in that life, and again, content warnings, is on her 16th birthday, uh, well, no, on her 16th birthday, she's very roughly kissed by an American friend of her brother's, and that's, you know... You, you, the readers know that that's horrible, but she's kind of 16 and like, well, that was a little weird, but I got kissed on my birthday. Right. And then a little bit later, I forget exactly, but a few months later, he comes to visit again and just uh, brutally rapes her uh, yeah. out of nowhere. Like they're walking down the hallway and he grabs her and does this terrible thing. Yeah, it's probably the hardest which, scene uh, it's in the book to read. Yeah, pretty horrible scene. Um, and that results in her becoming pregnant. And then she goes to she doesn't really know what to do. So she talks to her sort of flighty and ridiculous sort of flapper aunt in London who arranges for her to have an abortion, but without properly explaining to Ursula what's going on. Yeah, that uh, was, I, that part actually, that so this whole section, 
I thought some of it was static, but actually the stuff with the ant I thought was really strong because not only do we have the kind of the plot line of the illegal abortion, but the way that her aunt deceives her is so heartbreaking. Yeah, like, uh, you know, Ursula doesn't really know how any of this works or what an abortion is, and Izzy just says, well, we'll get rid of it, and then she goes to the doctor and is sedated and it's done, and Ursula asks, like, what did they do? Like, where's the baby? Like, did they give it to a good home? You know, it's a really horrible sequence. Um, and so Ursula basically ends up being very listless in this life, ends up at one point tripping and falling on the street and, like, damage, breaking her nose, and what seems like sort of a gallant young man comes over and sort of rescues her, and she ends up marrying him three months later, but then it turns out that he's just a horribly abusive guy. And after, He's a total psychopath. He's like an actual yeah, psychopath. <laughs> an ab- absolute monster uh, who's lied to her about basically everything, and, it's you know, it's a really—I I did think it was a very— believable portrayal of an abusive marriage Very even as so. i do agree that to some extent i was like i get it you know at some point but it ends up with him beating her to death in her aunt's home uh and, and her and brother i think right he, uh, it's not clear to me if teddy is killed in that sequence or not yeah, but he's certainly he's definitely... badly injured uh, right. it's not good so it's a really horrible sequence uh but i i I, agree, I tend to agree that i think it went on a little too long um and, and one of the things i think the book does mostly pretty well is she sort of does not waste a lot of time in this book for all that it's a 500 page book. You know, she's got 20 or so lives to get through. And so she will just skip over stuff. Like a a character will get murdered. Uh, There's a, there's a serial killer wandering in the woods around uh, the childhood home, which honestly I thought was maybe a little too much, but like (laughs) at one point, one of Ursula's childhood friends gets murdered by this guy and it's like a three page thing. And they're like, yeah, that was awful. And then they move on. And then later on they'll come back and on future lives, she will try to stop it from happening and usually succeed. But you know, she doesn't really feel the need to give every scene the weight that it would require if this was the only life we were going through. Do you know yeah. what I mean? She'll just yeah. be like, yep, Nancy died. It was awful. It was terrible. Now let's move on to what happens next. Uh, and I, I generally thought that was right for how to go through this book where you're telling the same story 20 times, sort of. But uh, I think she spent too much time on the abusive marriage. And I can't really say there's any one scene that I thought, oh, this was poorly written. Or it was just like, I, this is horrible and I get it. And... I'm still very confused about what's going on. And I also agree with you that to some extent it was difficult to square that Ursula with some of the other Ursulas we'd already seen before. And obviously she'd gone through some really horrible things and that's maybe the point, but I think, I think it is sort of the point, but even, even beyond just like um, the character of Ursula, there was just a, it's a different narrative tack, which I think, you know, I think Kate Atkinson's obviously aware of what she's doing. She's, showing Ursula against these, like, impersonal forces, the flu in World War II, and then she's showing her against this personal force, and, like, the the worst is the personal force, which is similar to her time in Germany, actually, where the impersonal forces of World War II are made very personal in the uh, persons of the <laughs> Nazi party. <laughs> um, yes. Which we'll get to the literal, the literal Nazis soon. But, um, so I think that's, like, I, I, it makes sense conceptually um, it makes sense when you kind of zoom out, but there is something at the at the reading level that I think was just a little off, and I, I do think it's that narrative stagnation because you get so much power through the um, attempts and failures to defeat the flu that when we finally break through that, um, I actually think, yeah, I actually, I, I would have been curious what this book would have felt like if she had had a similar thing with this husband, you know, if we'd seen a few different outcomes with the husband, which again, she's smart. Later we do like this guy shows up again and she just bypasses him. Right. Yeah. Just runs um, away from him. Yeah. And, 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 and that's actually, that was those little details, the ways in which Atkinson plays with the reader's desire to track all those small changes is so intelligent because so her, her, 
the way that she avoids that terrible, um, you know, illegal abortion and, um, uh, you know, the abusive husband, the way that she avoids that in later life is she avoids the American who first kisses and then, and then rapes her. Um, right. That's how she initially does it. But later in the book, there's a moment where, um, she still kisses him. <laughs> they have a kiss. Yeah. Again. It's, it's, it's like just dropped in there. And, and yet the, the subsequent life doesn't happen. And I think that's where Atkinson's at her, at her best, where she's keeping track of everything even more than you are. And she is sort of playing with you of like, oh, like, like what about this character? Did you notice that? You want to go, well, I'm going to actually change, you know, change the dynamics of what you think um, matters because the whole butterfly, you know, stuff on her butterfly changed the world time travel, you know, paradox is what she's playing with. But she kind of changes the importance of the butterfly, right? Like the butterfly was mm-hmm. so important in this last moment, but actually, hey, this time we stepped on it and it was fine. Um, and I, I thought that element of her kind of, you know, playfully leading the reader along was really, really fun. And I actually think you you basically lose all of that in that kind of section where she has the abusive marriage. Um, which again, maybe and maybe they, maybe there's no other way to do it. I mean, sometimes I think books back you into a corner and you write your way out of it as best you can. But I, but yeah, but for me, I feel like the flu and the World War II stuff were, were definitely stronger. I will say one more note about Kate Atkinson and psychopaths, <laughs> um, <laughs> because her her detective novels, but also her other two novels I've read, Transcription and um, Shrines of Gaiety, Shrines of Gaiety especially, psychopaths are common in her books in a certain way. It, it, she, I think, she does believe, at least in a, like a, a heightened literary sense, you know. All literature is just symbolically trying to get at real life through heightened things, I think. And in her heightened view of the world, you're always one push away from a psychopath. I think she really does believe that. And I think she it's similar to her belief that, like, um, you know, that these impersonal forces make life very hard. She she doesn't have, like, um, she's a, I think she has a very profound view of human goodness. But I think she really encases that human goodness in a pretty brutal world. Um, and that's true of all of her novels. And in fact, m- all of her novels do seem to be this like reclamation of women's stories um, in a way that's like almost like kind of second feminism going back and recovering w- women authors, you know, like trying to recover these women's lives that have been looked, looked, o- you know, looked past for so long. She's definitely in that vein. Um, but part of what she's often recovering um, is the way that like a woman's life is always intersecting these potentialities of violence that's definitely a huge yeah. theme for her yeah. so the psychopath i agree the psychopath showing up and killing nancy <laughs> was uh, i don't know it definitely felt out of left field but it as someone who's read more atkinson it also felt like classic atkinson where it was like oh yeah in my neighborhood growing up there was a guy who ran around killing people but we we moved past that um well what's funny is totally... that didn't end up being a bigger part of the book no like, it's I, not <laughs> like it's always a threat when she's a kid is yeah. there's always like oh right also if i you know I need to make, but she's actually very rarely threatened by him. She is briefly at one point in one of her lives, but uh, it's mostly what's going to happen to Nancy, her friend, right? Exactly. And there are several moments in the book when she either like sees something and it triggers this just fear. She's like, I got to go find Nancy. You know, Uh, she's not even clear what's going on, but she knows something terrible is going to happen to Nancy. But we didn't really like solve this mystery. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's probably the rag and bone man in the area. That's probably who's doing it. But. Like, she goes back in time to kill Hitler one time. She does not, at any point, to my knowledge, go back and kill the rag and bone man, which is an interesting choice. She's like, yeah, no, sometimes in life you have, you know, murderous serial killers, uh, but Hitler we got to deal with. (laughs) Similarly, another thing that, so another way that I think Atkinson 
begins a mystery and lets you enjoy sort of the pleasure of trying to solve a mystery. And then she tries to lead you to like a higher joy of the mystery being unsolvable, but still like what, 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 what's fun is considering the solution. What's not, it's not always as fun to actually find a solution. And there's no kind of subplot or maybe line throughout the novel that I think um, deals with that instinct more than Sylvie. Um, mm. For example, is Teddy the son of Ursula's dad? Do they have the same dad, you think? Because I don't. I think they have different dads. I think it's certainly possible, at least. I don't know as I have a strong opinion, but there's yeah. a number of indications that Sylvie has some sort of huge crush on George Glover. Um, and, That's and my guess. Yeah, my guess is it. that George so. Glover, who's a, like a beautiful field hand, <laughs> like glows in the sun or whatever. <laughs> my guess yeah. is that, you know, that I feel but like, but it's not, it's, it's not even, it's hinted at so lightly like you and I couldn't even have an argument about like, oh, well, here's the evidence for why I think it is and here's why yeah. I think it's not, right? We couldn't even do that. But we do see Sylvie dressed up with a man who's not her husband in London in one of her yes, lives. Yes, we do. Yeah. And it's never followed up on. Um, yeah. Her and her husband, Sylvie's Ursula's mom, as a reminder, Sylvie and her husband make jokes about like, oh, is that one mine? Or is that so-and-so's from that beach town we were in? Like they have this ongoing joke, which the English, God knows that could definitely be like an actual, <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. a black humor way of dealing with her infidelity. Um, so, but, but what I love is that Sylvie, because, you know, she's Ursula's mom, she's sort of this main character throughout the book, but definitely in the first chapters. And then, um, she, she just kind of floats away. Like she's always important, but I kind of thought she'd be more central as the novel went on, but she is one of the kind of mysteries of life that I think Atkinson says, you know, enjoy, enjoy the, you know, enjoy the ride as long as you can and then let it go. Um, but I do, I do think that's my conspiracy theory, though, is that Teddy is, is George Glover's son, for sure. Okay, well, I have a conspiracy theory about Sylvie as well. Okay. Sylvie's also going through an eternal recurrence. Yeah, I, I, I saw this in your notes, and I love this, and I'd like you to expound on it if you can. <laughs> so quick tag, first of all, before uh, eternal recurrence is one of Nietzsche's ideas, which Atkinson repeatedly tags. Uh, his, part of his description of it is the epigraph to the book, one of the epigraphs to the book, and Ursula at one point... Teddy says, when they're, when, when they're in their adulthood in one of the lives, Teddy says, wouldn't it be great to do life over and over and over again until you got it right? And Ursula says something like, I think it would be exhausting, and then doesn't quote Nietzsche or you know, says she almost quotes Nietzsche. The eternal recurrence is a Nietzschean thought experiment about how basically you should try to live your life on the assumption that you're going to be living the same life infinitely, and so you yeah. should try to make it something you're comfortable with. Uh, it's not, I don't really think Nietzsche thought this was true although it's always very hard to say with Nietzsche but it's an idea that he seems to have as sort of part of his sort of aesthetic ethical philosophy to the extent he had one rather than just screaming which he didn't but anyway uh, a little dig at Friedrich Nietzsche there it's real real cutting edge work here it's from time. Oberlin. <laughs> it's time I'm coming for you Freddy yeah uh, anyway and so uh, Ursula's going through this, and it, it, it appears that not everybody in the world is, although maybe, because Ursula's repeated lives, everyone's like, she's such a weird girl, right? In a way that it's probable that not everybody is going through this, although I think it is possible. But I think there are a few hints that Sylvie might be going through one as well. And the most important one is, in one of the first go-throughs, Sylvie, uh, so the second major go-through, 
Uh, Ursula is born with uh, her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck, and the doctor got there in time this time and snips it with a pair of surgical scissors. And Sylvie thinks to herself sort of deliriously, I should get a, I should get some surgical scissors. It might be useful for next time. And she's like, well, that's not going to come up again. She's sort of making fun of herself, right? Well, and then in one of the absolute last scenes of the book, Ursula is born. The doctor isn't there. Ursula is born with her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. And Sylvie pulls a pair of surgical scissors out of her drawer and thinks to herself, practice makes perfect. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is she occasionally makes sort of weird oblique comments about things, right? Uh, like, there's a timeline where Ursula ends up in Germany and becoming a German citizen, basically because she went there on a study abroad trip and liked it and stayed there, and now is living in Hitler's house with her sick daughter, and it's terrible, right? Yeah, she, like, uh, falls in love with, like, a, a guy who becomes a big Nazi guy. Yeah. Uh, and when Sylvie comes to visit Ursula in the mid, you know, in the, in the 30s, uh, Ursula's pregnant, and Sylvie says something like, to think, here you're going to be a mother to a German right and that could just be sylvie being crummy but it could also be like oh this time go around things really went in an interesting direction because in most of these lives ursula does not become a mother i think that's the only one where she does that we see right yeah yeah the other thing is sylvie kills herself right sylvie takes an overabundance of sleeping pills on ve day because she's so sad about her uh, son teddy dying probably although it's a little bit unclear they talk about the kids talk about how i guess she just wanted to leave the stage on this day this is what she did but they're not quite clear on what happened she doesn't leave a note and there's a couple times in ursula's lives when ursula deliberately kills herself knowing that she's going to get to go back and do it over again one time in particular when she decides to structure her whole life around killing hitler so those are the sort of main things i kind of think sylvie might also be going through an eternal recurrence and I think some other people must be too, because there are things that change that Ursula couldn't possibly have been the cause of the change for, right? It's like whether or not Ursula dies at birth is dependent on whether or not the doctor gets snowed in, right? And obviously Ursula can't impact that, right? (laughs) She's in the womb. She does not have the ability to alter the weather. So either there's some amount of chance involved in these recurrences or some other people are making choices that change things, right? And then there's the psychologist, uh, Dr. Kellett, I believe is his name, who seems to maybe know some things he shouldn't know. And also, uh, in the first life where she spends a lot of time with him, he uh, has... It's his son, right? Guy? Is that right? Yep. Yeah. He, he has a picture of his son, Guy, who died in the First World War. But then in another life, he has no idea who she's talking about when she asks him about Guy. So I think maybe he's making choices that change each go-around, too. I'm not 100% sure. But that's my conspiracy theory, is that at least some of the other people in this novel are also undergoing an eternal recurrence. There. That's my book club opinion. Thank you for your time. Well, well, and what actually would make that opinion, I think, you know, um, what makes it so appealing is that Ursula's specialness is that she's maybe more aware of it than others. So I do think Sylvie must be aware, in this theory, for it to be true, I think Sylvie would be the most aware of everyone you mentioned but um, but she's also kind of baffled by Ursula, right? Like Ursula yeah. has that deja vu stuff. Sylvie's like, "What are you talking about?" You know. But I so there's two things, two thoughts I have. One is that I think Ursula, um, even if other people have some kind of like impression of their past lives, Ursula seems to have a stronger connection if there right. are, if there are multiple going through eternal recurrence. Second of all, though, there's a way in which the eternal recurrence fades as you get older it seems like i know we talked about at the end of the book 
that seems to be less true. Like if you get old enough, it becomes stronger. Like Ursula begins to dream her past lives. Like you said at one point, she basically chooses very intentionally to go back <laughs> to the birth of herself so she can go kill Hitler. <laughs> but that's but, yeah. but but she's she's on the precipice of death basically when she decides that. And I think unless she's near death or in older age, um, she seems to have less clarity around her past lives when she's kind of just an adult. Is what I felt like to me at least. Um, which again, my point is, since we're in the weeds here, that would actually support your theory even more because it means that Sylvie's seeming confusion would would be natural because as she as she ages into the rest of her you know into the, her middle adulthood, the recurrence kind of weakens, and then when her kids die and she's near death herself, it it kind of you know gets stronger. Um, but I, I definitely like the theory. I, I I like Sylvie in general. I do wish we actually had a little more of Sylvie throughout the novel. Um, but I, I thought all these characters, it's a classic Kate Atkinson thing. She loves to take stock characters. Again, she, she loves these kind of genre shows. She loves to take stock characters and just flesh them out in a way that makes you kind of, you, it's, it's really is having your cake and eating it too. You get to enjoy kind of the breezy, flippant flapper that is um, Ursula's aunt, you know, who writes best-selling boys going to school books, <laughs> you know, um, and like goes to Hollywood and fails and stuff. But, uh, but so she gets to have that kind of that fun TV character type stock, you know, personality. And yet we see the ant in so many guises that of course she could never be just that stock caricature, uh, which of course is true of life. You know, the, there's plenty of caricatures I meet every day in the library, but there's at least a few of them I've met enough times now where, yeah, the depth is always, is always there from a different angle. Um, but I love your conspiracy theory, and I'm going to adopt it and internalize it right now. Okay, so where do you, where do you want to go next? Do, we, do you want to dive into World War II stuff? Um, because I feel like that is the other, the other major part of this novel. I think that would make sense. Um, I think there's two, there really is two tracks of World War II. One is much smaller, and let's, let's just hit it, hit it first. Um, but the first is that she goes to Germany and falls in love and stays in Germany. And the second is the blitz that she experiences in London. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the German stuff, because actually, again, she makes all the right choices, I feel like. Like, it makes sense. But I actually, I still didn't love it, to be honest, the way I liked other parts of the novel. Well, it felt a lot more plot-motivated, which is fine. Again, I, I, I don't hate plot, as Joel and I both say. But it felt a lot more like, I need to come up with a way for her to already have an idea how to get into Hitler's company. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it felt like, it felt like this is there so that she can have this one life where she befriends Eva Braun and can therefore have the idea to murder Hitler, right? To assassinate Hitler. And I, I, didn't, I didn't find it as cleverly sketched and also like it had such incredible insights as hitler was a bombastic jerk which yes 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 i, I know that um, that's not <laughs> yeah. news to me i'm aware of that uh and i you know when you have a character and of course hitler was a real person but he's also a character right a character who's been portrayed so much specifically and like the the tension of hitler as being this incredibly powerful man who was also just like a little a, a weird little crummy dude right like that's that's the story of Hitler that we've all read, watched, seen, and thought about in a million different things, right? So to some extent, like, those revelations would be revelations to Ursula, but are not going to be revelations to anyone reading this book ever throughout all of history, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was a little bored by some of that, um, uh, which is fine. And it wasn't like there was 150 pages of it. Also, and I'm going to steal this from you because this was in your notes, but, like, I... 
Ursula has a daughter in this time frame, which is why she's still in Germany, because otherwise she was going to try to get out. Right. But her daughter got sick. And I, I, again, she's moving quickly, and she needs to in this book, but I think we needed a little more time about why Frida was special qua Frida and not just as qua this time I have a daughter. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, it's Frida it's definitely... is just sick, and that's it. That's what we know about Frida. It's definitely one of the few times where she 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 really does depend on the reader to supply their own sentiment, you know, which I think every author does a little bit. But you know, yeah, I have a daughter, and oh, I, I I love my daughter. I understand people people know what the parent relationship feels like if they have parents, much less children. So like, you can kind of supply that sentiment. But she's so good at character, like especially she's so good at like thumbnail sketches of characters you know what i mean like she can make a character specific so quickly it was weird she didn't do with the kiddo yeah i i agree with that here's my here's my pitch on um all of the the german section and actually to be honest the the beginning of the book too no hitler no direct contact with hitler that's my pitch or direct contact if she tries to kill hitler but i think the germany stuff could have been interesting um Partly because this book, I think, it's not just about World War II, although obviously it, it is a book about the way World War II, I think, hangs over modern Western civilization. But it is really about World War II in the mindset of Britons. And you hear this, yeah. um, if you, if you, especially Britons of a certain age, English of a certain age, will talk about the ways in which, oh, England could have gone down the fascist route that Germany went if certain economic things had been different, which the book talks about. Ursula thinks that more than once, yeah. that you know we had the same opportunity to embrace the devil, basically. And similarly, most rich British people either have German family or they definitely had German friends. And they talk about mm-hmm. it before she goes to Germany. They talk about, like her sister says, you know, we know people over there. Are they our enemy now? Um, Ursula's aunt, the, the ch- she gives birth to a child when she's a teenager, and the child is adopted by Germans. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, they've talked about like, is he bombing us now? And so that kind of <laughs> interconnected, you know, what if scenario that all Britons feel toward World War II. You know, Ursula says, "I'm a witness. I'm a witness to history." Like that's kind of her purpose, and maybe having re- eternal recurrence or not, who knows? But the point of the going to Germany section, I think, is to to have us see the ways in which, you know, um, British, the British mentality is haunted by how close they came to that. And also the classic, like, Hey, war is bad on both sides. Like there was an aggressor. I think there was, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it like you could, you can't, can't do good guys, bad guys, but you still have Berlin. I'm going to go ahead and say that as much (laughs) as I don't, I agree, generally agree that in life and history, you can't do good guys, bad guys. I'm not going to get too upset about it for the Nazis were the bad guys and everybody else was the good guys. I'm going to live with that abstraction. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, but I, I I do. I, I just, I get so tired of like, I don't know. I get so tired of that knee jerk, you know, like obviously the Nazis bad evil. Um, but I also do think war evil, and I think it is useful yeah, yeah. to see the ways in which um, civilians in Berlin, which Atkinson shows, like they eat the zoo animals. I loved that detail. Yeah. 
They're starving. And so they break in and eat zoo animals. And I think the book, like, you know, like any sane person, including the Germans in the modern age, no one's looking back and thinking like, oh, shucks, like we need more compassion for the Nazis. What's interesting is how you are entangled with evil people beyond your own personal choices, right? Or maybe because of your personal choices, but like the whole point of the book is that she goes to Germany, she falls in love, and even though she's had these past lives where she like knows World War II happens, it's not enough to keep her from falling in love and having a daughter and being stuck in the enemy country at a time when, you know, it's it's the worst possible time to have had this, you know, uh, study abroad fling basically. And what, what yeah. I find interesting, though, is that, again, all of that's there without Hitler, right? You don't need Hitler. We don't need to meet Eva Braun. We don't, we don't need to, like, have this whole, like, you know, she doesn't need to be invited to the hideaway where all the top Nazis are. I just don't think it's necessary. And I think it actually does make the book worse because, like you said, there's no special insight into Hitler. The man was evil. And, and any other insight into that is it misses the point of his salient time on Earth. Um, whereas the stuff about her being kind of, like, you know, trapped by love in the enemy country. Like, yeah, that's there no matter what. So that that's my read of it, um, is that it, it just didn't need, I don't know, I would just cut Hitler. I would have cut Hitler out of it. Yeah, so this is this is one of the questions I had, because I actually, I, I'm kind of of two minds about the whole killing Hitler plot, right? Because on the one hand, it's so very tired, right? Even Doctor Who has dealt with a killing Hitler story, right? But... On the other hand, if you really were going through an eternal recurrence in the early half of the 20th century, how would you not at some point try to kill Hitler, right? Like, this is the this is the tension I have. If you really were reliving that time period again and again and again and seeing the Blitz again and again and again and seeing what happened in Berlin again and again and again, and as she has in one of her lives when she lives to the 60s, seeing all the stuff that was going on in, you know, the the wars in like Israel and Israel and Palestine and so on right. and all the other stuff that was going on and like obliquely references Vietnam and so on how would you not at some point try to go kill Hitler if you were trapped in that forever right like oh no I mean I actually so what, what I I think the compromise <laughs> and I, this is what I I gestured to at one point I think yeah I think you could you could keep the even the killing Hitler point but putting her in Hitler's inner circle I think is just totally unnecessary. Yeah, I I tend to think that, like, there is a sequence when it talks about her making a deliberate decision to go to this one photography shop to meet Eva Braun. I don't think we needed to have already met Eva Braun to do that, right? Exactly. That's exactly what I mean, yeah. Yeah, she she could have lived in Nazi Germany and gotten bombed out and had all the rest of those sometimes very good scenes. And then we could have had just a brief, like, here's my plan. And then you have the, (laughs) you know, nice to meet you, Hitler-like sequence. We don't actually need to meet Hitler at any other moment. I would agree with that. Um, but, but I, you know, but, so Kate Atkinson, you know, listen to our notes for your next draft. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> well, it's good. I do think. I mean, it's always helpful for me. Like, especially, it's it's honestly, it's so rare that I have the time in my life these days to pick apart a novel I like, much less a novelist I respect this much. And it is it is really helpful for a lot of reasons because um, you you do. I mean, you you start to gain your own sense of what matters to you. I, I think for I think for Atkinson it did matter that she was in Hitler's inner circle. I'm not sure it's justified by the text, but I think that, I, you know, Atkinson's super smart. She thought that it was an option not to do that, right? That was definitely an option in her book to not have her in the inner circle of Hitler's, um, you know, crew. And she chose to do it. And I, I just, yeah. But I, but I think what's helpful sometimes is, like, you realize, well, okay, 
I, I think I do have a different instinct and I'm curious like how to actually, you know, explicate that in a way that maybe can be helpful in the, in the future. So that's the German stuff. I, I think, I think I'm with you. If you lived through um, World War II as many times as she did, it'd be hard. Like what else would you but try and kill Hitler? But yes, take Hitler out of the, um, the actual first part of that story. The second part of the World War II stuff, which again, we see the end of it, I think, on like page 138, but it's yeah. most of the second half of the novel is her living through the Blitz. And I think you and I had the exact same reaction, which was, this really reminds us of Connie Willis. <laughs> the book repeatedly reminded me of Connie Willis, but definitely, yeah, when you have some sort of time travel shenanigans in the Blitz, that's Connie Willis, uh, particularly in Blackout All Clear, her too long novel about time travelers trapped in the blitz and in firewatch uh which is her first time travel story and is uh perfect pretty close which is also about a guy working on the firewatch in st paul who's a time traveler uh so yeah i i think you can't avoid thinking about connie willis that doesn't mean kate atkinson was thinking about connie willis connie willis is an american writer i have no idea how well known she is over in england I know there are at least some English writers who think Connie Willis's obsession with uh, England is kind of embarrassing because they think she gets some stuff wrong. That's actually how Adam Roberts feels. I don't know if you do that. Uh, I, I have actually. I mean, I, I'm not surprised I, by that because she does seem to have like a a Midwestern who loves PBS affection for England. Which I, <laughs> I well, I re- and I, I relate to that. You know, that's how I grew up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so I don't know to what extent Kate Atkinson is familiar with Connie Willis. Uh, this book is about three years after Blackout All Clear. Uh, so I, I don't mean to suggest that Atkinson is vamping on Connie Willis. But yeah, if you're Bill and Joel reading this in 2023, you can't avoid thinking about Connie Willis when you think about this book. So uh, well, I but, cut what, you off there with a long aside, but go ahead. No, I, well, I, I wanted you to, um, to, yeah, to go, go into it a little bit because actually I think the... The, I don't know, relationship to Connie Willis, it is based on you and I's affinity for Connie Willis. But also, this is a time travel novel. I mean, at some point, like, she is aware enough of her past lives that it is it is the same mechanisms of plot driving it forward. Basically, can I change things? Can I go back and change things? The biggest one is Hitler. But in this novel, I mean, we have um, several threads through the Blitz. She has an affair with, like, a high-ranking admiral, she is in kind of the home office intelligence stuff for a while. Sometimes she's not. She's blown up in uh, her apartment building for some of these lives in the Blitz. Other parts of her life, she is helping recover the bodies of her neighbors who were blown up in that building. But, of course, they're yeah. not her neighbors. It's a different life. So I think even though it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's uh, submerged and it's, it's not explicit in the way that a time travel sci-fi novel is, I do think the relationship, like a lot of the narrative energy is the same, that it's the question of, well, can she fix it? Can she, can she change it? Um, and the answer on the Blitz is like, yeah, but it's still going to suck, <laughs> I think, basically. So she dies in the Blitz, by my count, three times, and... Uh, what's interesting is I think it's always either in or adjacent to that same house. In one life, she's just down there with her, like, people, other people who live in the townhome or at the row house or whatever it's called. You know you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, yeah. And then uh, another time, she knows enough to run out to, like, chase after a dog, and then the building next to it falls over and kills her. And then another time, she doesn't live in that. She's living with her, she's having this affair with this, I think he's not technically an admiral, but he's in the admiralty. And they're living in this, like, you know 
petitaire somewhere in sin, you know, and then she goes to visit this house where she used to live. And that's the same <laughs> yes. day that the bomb yeah. falls, uh, which is a great, which is really good. You know, sometimes the little changes, as you say, you know, the butterfly it results in a different history. And sometimes you don't even go to the same planet the butterfly was on and you end up in the same place. And that's that was fun. I like that. That was smart. Yeah, I agree. I actually thought that was one of the better parts, too, that she has these actually she has these huge life changes and the same bomb kills her. Um, that was very intelligent. I, I did think once she once she got on the um, gosh, what's the team called where she helps, you know, respond to oh, she's one of the wardens, bom- right? Wardens. Yeah. The wardens? yeah. Yeah. Um, once she's on that team, I, I, I loved all of those sections. I loved the team. Um, she, she Atkinson throughout the novel has all of these for me, like it, it has to, it's, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a punchline the way she includes literary names, you know, like Ursula's yeah. brother's name, Maurice. It seems like a famous reference to E.M. Forrester's um, novel, Maurice. Um, even like these characters don't have any like thing in common with their namesakes, but like, um, the, 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 the head warden or whatever that Ursula works with is named Miss Wolf spelled just like Virginia Wolf. I tagged yep. a bunch of others throughout, but there's, there is this kind of ongoing literary, you know, um, kind of, you know, she's kind of poking you in the side with her elbow saying, ah, don't forget how much I love literature. <laughs> 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 I mean, but I still, it is still fun. Um, cause I do think she is dealing with a, I think this, this book is interested and British character, actually. I mean, all of her books are, but this one especially. And I thought the the Warden chapters where they are, you know, they're digging out dead bodies and um, they're dealing with their own team members dying. I found yeah. it super moving, to be honest. I mean, I have in my notes that when Miss Wolf dies, I found it very affecting. I, I actually, I thought that was one of the better, better sequences of the whole book was that the way that she kind of ruthlessly dispatched characters, um, and yet the sentiment, I, th- I felt like we were allowed to feel feel more for them than we did for other characters in the book. No, I, I think uh, those sections were definitely some of the best sections in the book. Um, and again, not just because they reminded us of Connie Willis. Uh, <laughs> but I want to talk a bit about, so there's actually a pretty violent book uh, between the Blitz and the Berlin bombings and the abusive husband and the you know the American rapist and all that. I want to talk a bit about the way Atkinson talks about gore. Because uh, there's a fair amount in the book, right? Of actual, like, very explicit violence and gore. Yeah. But I think she does it in a way which I don't think is ever exactly playful, but it's a way of describing it enough so you know what's going on, but without being incredibly graphic, right? Like, she doesn't tend to talk about, and I could see the viscera on the ground and the smell of in the air, you know, like that, that sort of thing. She doesn't really right. do that. Yeah. But she talks about, the most horrible one I remember is one of the other volunteers is in a... He's in a building which gets blown up, and Mrs. Wolf and Ursula go and find him, and they go to move his body, and like one grabs him by the arms, other by the legs, because there's no. It appears to be all internal injuries, and yep. his body comes apart like a Christmas cracker, which I thought was a spectacularly horrible image that could have been sort of like funny, like a sort of like grim humor thing, but I didn't really think it was funny. I thought it was just a very evocative image that didn't didn't need to tell you exactly what that was, because you know, right? Like. Oh, it means he came apart and stuff fell out. Like, she doesn't have to say that, but that's what that means. And uh, that's often how she deals with it. Like, there's some pretty grim stuff. Like, one of her neighbors in the building that gets blown up, like, 
her body gets sort of fused with the wall in her dress, but her head and legs are gone, right? So that a couple times when she sees this, because she sees it a couple different lives, she thinks there's just a dress hanging on the, like a hanger. And that's, you know, pretty graphic, pretty horrible. But the way she describes it doesn't ever, like, it's not trying to grab you in like a cheap and thrilling way. Uh, And I thought that was fairly, fairly effective. Um, And again, I think she walked the fine line of it being, conveyed primarily through metaphor rather than just rote description without ever becoming funny because that's the danger about doing that is it can become very funny when you start describing gore through sort of cheeky metaphors rather than right i mean you can sound like you're reading some sort of horrible dark humor and i don't think she ever hit that which i think is, is right for this book this book needs to not make the blitz funny no, it's true. The Blitz wasn't funny. I hadn't thought of it, actually, because she, she is a funny writer. She's sort of sly and yeah. wry in her humor. It's very it's very Muriel Spark. It's very Penelope Fitzgerald. Um, she's actually probably not as funny as, as either of those people in some ways, but she is a funny writer. You're, you're encouraged, I think, to smile, if not laugh, through a lot of her paragraphs. And, and yet I hadn't thought about the fact that like part of the Blitz, I think, was such a a key change for her because she doesn't make jokes. And in addition, I do think to just add another point to what you were saying, you know, it's, it's so like, it's so tempting when you're writing, um, a really like gory moment or action packed moment. I think there's two instincts, both one of which is better. The first instinct that a lot of people, you know, it's a mistake. I think is you do use kind of a highfalutin analogy and then the reader yeah. just gets confused, like, well, what's happening here? <laughs> what's literally happening? Because it's already a it's already a heightened moment, and so the metaphor actually kind of obscures the scene. Um, the other instinct, which I think is probably better usually, is that when the action gets heightened, you know, when it's really, you know, it's really like um, b- the beginning of um, one of Julia Tsuka's books. I can't remember which one it is, which which which, which book it is, but. Um, this Japanese American mom is going to go to a, you know, um, internment camp and she has to kill the pet dog. (laughs) It's like the opening of the book (laughs) and it's the most understated language ever. And it's perfect for that moment. I think actually Atkinson is a, is a case study in what you're saying and how to bring figurative language to these heightened moments that doesn't obscure the moment itself. Um, she is really good at it. And part of that, why she's good at it. It's in this in this book, it's because the images recur based on the lives recurring often. But in every book I've read of hers, the characters chew on the image. The image occurs to them, usually in their own head, and then they come back to it. You know, they come back to it again and again in a way that kind of makes it concrete. Um, but I hadn't thought about the Blitz not being funny. I think that is a really important part of this book because it is kind of a funny book. And there are definitely, I don't know, the only funny part is kind of her getting blown up by the same bomb. There's yeah. a black joke element in that, I think. But otherwise, it's a very grim section. And it feels, I don't know, it, it, it feels really important. Um, I don't know, it feels important to the British character that, that, that that's never anything but, but brutal. Um, One of the other moments where I was really impressed by how she described violence was, so the first time that, so, so Derek, her abusive husband in that one life, um, he kind of lays his hands on her three times, I think. Once right. he just slaps her. Second time he beats her very badly, but she survives and then later on he kills her right and after the second time he's beaten her and she's you know been knocked unconscious on the floor gets up and decides to leave and manages to get out of the house it's not like we know she's hurt but it's not quite clear how badly she's hurt until she's trying to buy a ticket to the train and the train agent is just staring at her and there's a single line about her trying to talk through like bloodied and broken teeth but again she doesn't dwell on the physical violence that's been done to her very much 
but the reaction to the from the ticket agent and from a few other people is what we need to know to know just how badly she's been injured. And I thought that was really well done in a way that was very effective without being, again, prurient. Because that's the other thing, like, terrible violence in a book can end up being, you know, prurient. And I think she managed to avoid that entirely. I agree. I totally agree. So I want to read you a series of statements concerning this book. And you have to tell me true or false and give me an explanation. Are you ready for that now? Or do you want to to add some more about the Blitz or the end of the book or anything else first? No, let's do our quiz. That sounds fun. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to read these in random order, and I, I, <laughs> I thought of them pretty much off the top of the dome before we started this podcast, so bear with us. But I think this will. I think, I think some of this stuff is, is getting to the heart of this book. At least it's, it's fun, if not. All right, Bill. True or false? This book is about loving your country. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say... True, but not in a cheap, patriotic kind of way, and with an understanding that everybody should feel that way about, to some extent, should feel that way about their own country. There's definitely a lot about, like, like Ursula does talk about her how she's become sort of a patriot, uh, and she does always do a lot of work in the home office, but I would say it's mostly about loving the people in the country rather than the a- ideal concept of Britain or whatever, right? So, yes, but as a way of caring for the people who live there. That's my answer. I would just add, too, that so she has a pretty, like, um... Uh, ideal pastoral childhood, yeah. you know, like the house they live in is kind of surrounded by the country. And there's the classic kind of suburbanization discussion that like what used to be open fields and beautiful yada yada is becoming kind of these, you know, not apartments, but you know, other houses are moving in basically. Yeah. And what I liked though, is, is I like when those really annoying ideas that have like been chewed to death in the media since the time of world war two until now, there's nothing new to say about it. So what I like about those ideas, in a book at least, like this, I like when they're presented through, um, like as an internal experience. You know, like there's nothing new to say politically about the suburbanization or the destruction of English fields. However you want to, you know, however, however you feel about it, yay or nay. There's nothing new to say about it. I think from like almost like a political argument standpoint. But she gives the very basic experience of someone who grew up there, lived through a terrible, like, urban disaster with the Blitz, right? right? Like, part of the violence of the Blitz is that you're dropping bombs on these hugely concentrated areas of humans. Um, and so I think some of the idealization of the British countryside, of course the World War II generation has that. They saw the world change in a way no one else did, and a lot of them lived through the worst possible reality of being in the city. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, but I like when that stuff is kind of recast as like an experience and not just a talking point. That makes sense. All right, ready? This book is science fiction. No, because it's not marketed as science fiction and that's the only difference anymore. How dare you? I want more of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, yeah, of course it is. In any real world, yeah, this book is a sci-fi book. Uh Some of its quirks might be because Kate Axenson is not primarily a sci-fi author, and that might be both good and bad, right? Uh, There might be moments when you're like, maybe a little more familiarity with some of these books might have helped you out. And there are other moments when you're like, oh, this was a nice new way of thinking about it. So, I mean, the real answer is, yes, it is a sci-fi novel, except that, again, the only difference, particularly these days, I think, since I think a lot of our lit fix stuff is playing a lot with genre tropes, I really do think that, to some extent, the only difference is how it's marketed. And so... In that sense, no. That's actually a very similar answer that Gene Wolfe tries to give in that weird YouTube talk we've seen where he talks with Studs, yeah. Studs Terkel yeah. and um, Brad, uh, Asimov, I mean, and um, Harlan, 
who is it? Harlan Ellison? Who is it? I think it's Harlan Ellison. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, so you know, actually, and actually, Studs Terkel is annoyed by that. He's like, stop talking about marketing, <laughs> which is what I just, did, which is what I just did to you. <laughs> but um, I think you're not wrong. The one, the one caveat I would give, I do feel like there's this strange third, and in a different period, we, we would call it actually, I think, fantasy, maybe more than sci-fi. But there is this hmm. strange third that exists in literary fiction, and it, it happens to be a lot of the fiction that I like. Um, the ones that I thought of that I could remind me of this book that kind of exists in that weird, almost what I would call like supernatural third would be um, some of Muriel Sparks books. I mean, the, the, the biggest yep. one is her first book, The Comforters. There's stuff that happens in that book that is not realism. It's, it's plainly not realism um, in a way that would say, okay, if it wasn't, I don't know, if it wasn't, if it was cast differently, if it was approached differently, this unrealistic thing we would call it fantasy, but it's 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 just cast in a way that doesn't make you feel like it's fantasy. And similar with this book, like I, she doesn't care about the recurrence why it happens. It's like, like there's no world building mentality behind the eternal recurrence. It just is. And so it, for me, it always feels like a, it feels like almost a supernatural third. That I for me, I would actually probably put it like more in the fantasy side of things. Um, but you're right that it is just a marketing element. She's a literary writer. You know, unless unless she's going to call it sci-fi, no one else will. I mean, I, I do agree that the fact that she doesn't care about why the eternal recurrence is happening is meaningful in terms of you are actually going to meaningfully put it in a genre slot. I think there is a long tradition of speculative fiction, perhaps not science fiction, uh, doing that sometimes, right? But but I agree. I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, the real answer is I don't care, right? Oh, is yeah. the actual answer to the question. But uh, I, I, I think you could sell it either way. And I think that um, it's, I do think it's fun that a lot of literary fiction is doing more genre stuff now. I think that's fun. I think, I, I think a lot of stories are more interesting when you add a little bit of something that can't happen into them. Um, I, I do sometimes think that the literary fiction writers think they're breaking new ground when they're not. I have not read it, but I guess Kazuo Ishiguro's robot novel annoyed everyone who's read robot novels because <laughs> it was like, yes, we've all done this before a hundred times. I've not read it. I don't have that opinion, but a lot of people I know who do both are like, he's basically just doing Lieutenant Commander Data all over again, never mind all the other stuff for the last hundred years. I don't know if it's true, but I it makes me chuckle to think about That's it. That's fair. I mean, he. I will say for... You know, all of his books, though, like um, Never Let Me Go, as I was trying to think of, that's just clones, yeah. right? Sorry, spoiler for everyone. It's clones. But I do think what he's always trying to do is he's trying to bust national myths. So that's why when he does an outright fantasy novel about, like, basically a, a, a King Arthur time period, I mean, he, he's, he, is, he, he knows he's playing with, like, these endlessly repeated tropes. And his goal usually is to kind of break some of the mythos around the trope itself. I, it actually is him at his least interesting for me, to be frank. So I, I'm not sure I would disagree with some of the criticism. But I do think, I will say, the idea that he's not aware of like Lieutenant Data, like that's in, like that that there's no way he doesn't know Lieutenant Data. Like he definitely is I, dealing with the myth around the myth. I think. Although I that's don't, probably true. I don't, again, I don't, I don't have. An well, I was to say, I don't want to read his no, his robot novel book. So, <laughs> 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 um, okay. So, relatedly, another kind of genre e question, but I think maybe uh, helpful. This book is a collection of short stories. I would say false, but I, I get it. I, I do think that the framing narrative is way too important. The fact that she's doing it again and again and again is way too important for it to be understood meaningfully as a collection of short stories, even as it does have a number of shorter contained narratives. Uh, but I would I would say false. I would say false, too, although I do think a lot of the joy of the individual sections 
feels short story-esque. Like the Blitz part especially, you couldn't actually extract it from the novel and have it be meaningful in the way that it is, which is why I would say false. But when you're in it, there is this sort of like um, precision and compression that I think reminds me of short stories. And also it, it is, it's, it's, it's like, it, it has enough inherent meaning that, you know, you don't really have to know about Teddy, you know, as a child to care about her putting out fires in apartments. Um, yeah. This book is funny. Oh, true. Yeah. I think it's frequently funny. Um, it's got a wry sense of humor about a lot of things. Ursula's pretty funny to herself, mostly in her own head. She's not as funny when she's talking out loud because as, as she goes through this more and more, she gets, I think, a little more introverted and wry and sort of world weary, but she's frequently funny. I think my favorite, and we're going to have to bleep this joke, is so she has a couple of different dudes she has sort of dalliances with right. throughout her lives and particularly during the Blitz section. Um, and there's one point where there's a guy she's had a crush on for a long time and he's a fire fireman and she's working in the wardens and they end up after a pretty, you know, grueling moment, basically going back to her aunt's house and having a passionate one night stand. And she makes a joke and he responds, yeah, well, I don't usually bring strange women over to houses and f- them either. And she hates that he uses that word so yeah, much. <laughs> she really does. And she makes a joke like, well, that's very Laurentian of you. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? And then later on, she goes to one of her other recurring bows and says, shall we perhaps go back to your house and f***? And he's like totally thrown <laughs> by that. And I thought that was a very funny sort of callback joke because he's clearly like, I have no idea where this is coming right. from. I don't know what this is about at all, but sure. Okay. <laughs> and I thought that was a pretty funny joke. Um, there's a number of others, but that was the one that I thought was funny. Well, perhaps. actually, that's where she also reminds me of Connie Willis, because it's not just this book that kind of recurrence and callback is how she makes jokes and also moves the plot forward. That's every book. She she is constantly kind of going in this you know spiral that moves upward. So you're returning to things you've already seen, but it's it's giving you momentum to move up. Um, I do think I, one of the ways she's funny, and actually this is the way she just writes dialogue in her latest novel, Shrines of Gaiety. I actually think she overdid it, but she loves to have someone kind of be thinking something in narration. And then another character will, will respond to it. And you realize that the, the narration was actually also partly dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a great way to have punchlines. Like I, I can't, I can't find it, but there's in, in the, uh, the scene with the wardens, there's several moments where she's like describing someone and then you know, the person responds and it's just an obvious like punchline cause you're jerked out of the narration. So you get kind of an immediate energy. And then of course, usually it's, it's funny. Um, but also that's, how, that's how she writes a lot of her dialogue and narration. I think it's a really smart way to turn narration into action, you know, without sort of having to flag it endlessly. It's a really like smart way to do transitions basically. But I do think it's obviously a funny novel. All right. Only a few more, Bill. Are you ready? I am. Hit me. This book is one you'll reread. Uh, I would guess false, but I think it would be worth rereading. I don't know if I will. I liked the book a lot. I don't know, is it like knocked my socks off enough that I'm going to come back to it? But I do think it would be worth it to come back to it. So I would guess probably not, but I would not be astonished if I did. Does that make sense? Yeah, actually, I I love Kate Atkinson. I think this is a very good novel. I can see why people were blown away by it. Although I do think, even though I kind of, I I push back against this with um, Ichiguro, and like, you know, him not knowing genre is why he was, you know, kind of, I don't know, it's like his books seem novel if you don't know any robot novels. I do actually think <laughs> some of the people who reacted to Life After Life, like like Jillian Flynn, I guess, like this book. Um, some yeah. an author I will never read, probably. But 
Like I, I actually. Oh, she's worth reading. Actually, honest to God, sharp objects and Gone Girl are decent. Are they? Uh, yeah. I mean, I. Yeah, well, I haven't read the other one. Yeah, but. I. We'll see. I might someday. I, I. She hasn't piqued my interest yet, but it's not to say she's a bad author or even a bad critic. But it did. Some of the praise of this book did feel like, oh, have you, have you never read like time travel fiction or speculative fiction? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and similar. This happened recently with um you know, uh, George Saunders, Lincoln and the Bardo. There was one, I can't remember who it was. There was one author who was furious. He's like, why is this book winning uh, the Booker Prize? Is like, it should be winning the Hugo if it wins anything. Like, this is a science fiction novel, and it's ridiculous that it's not even considered in those categories. <laughs> the, the, the one that came out recently that annoyed me the most was Mosin Hamid's Exit West, which I thought was pretty bad and was getting a lot of praise. And I was like, have you guys read any other novel about, like, technology or changes that change how we deal with space because people have been dealing with this for a very long time but anyway no i agree i just i so i think that is one of my reactions to this book is one i think it's less impressive if you've read other willis or sorry other atkinson especially (laughs) (laughs) that was a freudian slip (sighs) i like that (laughs) i mean actually it's true of both if you read willis and other atkinson some of the stuff in this book just isn't as sparklingly original to be honest Okay, this book, Bill, is, quote, one of the best of the century. I mean, that depends on how broadly you're drawing it. Like, from the grand scheme of all the books that have been written in the last 23 years, is this in the top 1%? Yes, because Sturgeon's Law applies, and 99% of everything is crap. I wouldn't call it one of the best books of the century in a more constrained sense. I think it's a good book. I'm happy to read it. I, you know, I'm happy to recommend it to people. Uh, you know, we've talked about it this much because we liked it. But I don't think it's meaningfully one of the best books of the century. No. Well, here's why I asked that question, because one, I hate that question, and I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to have it on record that it's a dumb question. Um, art is not the same thing as basketball. What makes basketball great is someone's crown champion. What makes art great is that you have various virtuosos acting on independent strains to an equal level of excellence that differs by taste and judgment and all kinds of unquantifiable things. In addition, though, is that that quote um, basically is inspired? I, you know, she's put on book lists that are like best of the century so far, but it, it's on the cover of the book where Gillian Flynn says, One of the best novels I've read this century. This book came out in 2013. <laughs> you you yeah. can't say century. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense for the time frame you've chosen. And then, especially because what happened is that Kate Atkinson, a few years later, writes a better book. I mean, this is a good book, but like I, for me, I think at this point, it, it has some weak spots, actually. It's either one of her Jackson Brody novels or it's Transcription. That's her best novel. And I, the, the idea that you would call this the best of the century, it's not even the best of Kate Atkinson. So you've, you've framed it wrong because that's not used to think of art. And then you've not even chosen the best Kate Atkinson to give people. Um, it's good. I mean, I, I can see why people love it because the experiment is so external and obvious but she's doing equally intelligent formal things in her detective series you know which i find more impressive like she somehow took a pd james mindset and inserted penelope fitzgerald into its bloodstream that's incredible that she pulled that off um yeah so but i also just wanted an excuse to rant for a second you can't rant on this podcast, Joel. That's my vein. <laughs> Dang it. Sorry. Right. Next time. Next time. <laughs> you have to be the reasonable scholarly one, and I'm the lunatic. That's the way this works. <laughs> oh, is that, wait, is that how people see us? <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Maybe it's just like two lunatics who like books. 
Um, eh, that's probably true. Okay, so I know you usually have your um, your th- you know small things you loved. Did you want to hit that, or did you want to hit anything else big? I think I have one other semi-big idea I want to talk about, uh, and I noticed this about a third of the way through the book. Um, Death is kind of cheap in this novel because she dies 15 or 16 or 17 times, but I actually think that has the surprising uh, impact of making moments when she's in danger feel scarier uh, because... You know, when you're normally you read a novel, and if on page 100 the character is riding shotgun in a car that is being driven at a thousand miles an hour by their, you know, silly aunt, you're thinking, oh, that sounds scary, but you're not really worried the character is going to die because it's page 100 of a 600-page novel. And there are books that surprise you in that fashion, right? Or maybe they don't die, but they get really badly injured. But mostly you can sort of be like, well, we're only a sixth of the way through the book. I think they're going to be okay. Um, However, because Ursula dies so many times in this book, when that happened and she was riding shotgun and her aunt was driving around like a, you know, like a wild person, I actually felt myself tense up a little bit because Ursula has been killed by a lot of surprising and silly random things so far. And yeah. Izzy driving into a telephone pole would fit. Or at one point, Ursula is a child and she chokes briefly on a sugar lump. And given that she has already died from, you know, drowning at the beach and so on, I was like, oh, no, here we go again. And that's. Uh, maybe not what you would think. You're like, oh yeah, she's going to die again. Who cares? But it made the moments when she was in danger but didn't die actually be scary again because uh, I didn't know what the structure of this book was going to be yet. So I thought that was really cool. Um, it reminds me of video games to some extent, right? And there's actually, there is sort of a video gamey question about this book, which I probably won't do too much of, but there's a sense in which she's trying the run again and again until she gets it right, right? Which is how you play like a roguelike. But like in video games, you can have the big scary monster that can actually kill you and... In, like, a narrative game where you, like, Mass Effect or something, right, where you do things mostly in a certain order, and if you die, the game just starts over, right? Like, not the whole game, but the, like, you just go back to the last save point, right? Right. Then the monsters don't get scary anymore after a while, because you're like, yeah, I know how to kill this. I've killed it a hundred times, and if it kills me, I'm just only losing 15 minutes of progress, right? Whereas in a roguelike, which is a game... Am I going to have to define roguelike on this podcast, Joel? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I (laughs) am very sorry. Roguelike is a game like the game Rogue, which came out in the early 80s. Or more accurately, it's a game which is like games which are like Rogue. Uh, There's actually an incredibly complicated semantic debate about what Roguelike means that I'm not going to do. Basically, it boils down to a kind of game where you have procedurally generated environments, which means you don't know what's around the next corner because it's generated partly randomly. Two, you have permadeath, which means if if you get killed, then you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the run. You don't get to save your progress partway through. Uh, Three they're very hard. That's really the main components of a roguelike as it's used these days. So examples are games like, well, Rogue, obviously, but also Spelunky was big, FTL, The Binding of Isaac, Hades is possibly the best of them. Um, there's a million of them. Uh, so, And they're, the, they're actually the best kind of video games in the world, possibly, because you can actually really explore the edges of the space and how video games work, and this is not a video game. Podcast. Well, but 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 no, but you're right that the stakes matter, though. The stakes because of because of the um, procedural like reset. Every time you fight someone, it matters. Yeah, the stakes matter, and also it forces you to explore the entire design space because, like, usually you don't know what you're going to get around the next corner, so you can't just say, "Well, at level three, I'll pick up the hammer of extra ogre killing, and then I'll be better on level six because you don't know if you're going to get the hammer of extra ogre killing, or even if there are going to be a lot of ogres on level six. So you have to explore the whole design space and not just play the same kind of character the whole time, which is also fun. But anyway, 
my point is, in a roguelike, the big scary monster is actually scary because if he kills you, you lose your whole setup, and also because you don't know if he's going to be around the next corner or not most of the time. Whereas, you know, the big scary monster in Mass Effect at some point, you're just like, oh yeah, it's this is when I fight this guy at level, you know, at this point in the game. And, you know, beating him can be exciting, but it's not quite as exciting because losing doesn't really Bill, have any consequences. quit maligning Mass Effect. I like Mass <laughs> Effect. It's just an example of a game. Pick a different example, Bill. It's the only game I've played through like nine times. <laughs> All right. Uh, 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 Uncharted. There, there's a game I don't care about. There we go. I think that's a great point. Actually, I, I love how you said that. And I, I had a similar thought, not nearly as well formed um which is why i love this podcast to be honest because i think i get to steal you know your precision so often but i especially at the beginning that's what i was trying to get at with the flu stuff earlier too is uh, yeah you're on the edge of your seat you know because you don't know if she's gonna make it and it did make man it did make the scenes where she like falls out of a window or whatever it was horrible because you like she's gonna actually die um which is true of other characters too it's not just her it's it's terrible like when Nancy dies and like does it like you know she mostly doesn't get killed by a psychopath in future lives but she does a few times. Any other big ideas you want to chew on or you want to do um, small things that were fun? I do. One, uh, Sylvie at one point asks Ursula on her first successful dodge of the flu, "What would I have done if one of you had caught the influenza?" Which one is sort of the, the one of the big questions in the book is like what happens to everybody else on these time sets right like when she dies does everyone else cease to exist is this solipsism what is this right but also um that's another reason i think maybe sylvie knows what's uh knows a little bit about what's up because i think she might actually have some idea what she does when one of them catches the influenza um some funny lines one the doctor doctor fellows she describes him as being like studiously monogamous but he like lets his fantasies run a little bit in his brain and but then he comes home and he says mrs fellows always smelled vaguely of fried onions but which was not necessarily a disagreeable thing (laughs) that's right (laughs) and that made me chuckle um ursula goes to see her aunt izzy in london at one point and izzy just treats her like an adult but not in like the fun way you treat a kid as an adult but like basically forgetting whether or not ursula can pay the tab and ursula's repeated response to that is i am 13 years old and that made me (laughs) chuckle so when she she marries the abusive husband and he's supposed to be working on this big book and it becomes clear at some point that he doesn't have any idea what he's doing and it's also become pretty clear to at least the reader that this guy is going to hit her at some point if he hasn't already right like, this is where this is going but her thought she sees his notes and she realizes she has married a kasabin and that made me chuckle for a few reasons one because it's a good joke about Middlemarch kasabin the guy who's never going to finish his incredibly complicated project that he's not qualified to write and two because that's her fear right because ursula's a big reader her fear is not oh my god derek is going to kill me it's oh no i've married this jerk from this novel (laughs) (laughs) and i really liked that that made sense for all that i was criticizing that section i i liked that bit uh there's a bit when she says now that the war is eternal she might as well read proust which made me chuckle a single line about, uh, at one point, Ursula thinks that she's as happy as possible in this life, which is a good usage of a cliche, because, you know, that's something people say, like, oh, it's as well as can be in this life, but of course for Ursula that has a lot of extra meaning. <laughs> um, I I want to ask what this line means, actually. I, maybe maybe this is actually a big idea. Um, in one of, one of the last life we see all the way through... She basically has like a breakdown because she has too strong a recollection of her past lives and goes running through the streets and has a rough time, right? Yep. She ends up going to the doctor. She sees Dr. Kellett again. She goes out and then she realizes that she can stop World War II, maybe. And so then she throws herself out the window, the same one she died in when she was like five. 
And she thinks to herself, this is love, and the practice of it makes it perfect. Which is kind of the sort of arc words of the whole book, practice makes perfect. Uh, that's interesting to me. What do you think exactly that means in this context, Joel? Because she's literally killing herself so that she can kill Hitler. What does that mean? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I think there, there's, a, there's a way in which the book, at several times, gestures at this larger thematic idea this is one of them, the practice makes perfect idea, and the, the specificity of this is love and the practice of it makes it perfect, that's interesting. But I'll, it's similar to me to how Ursula at times says she is born to be a witness. She's supposed to witness and bear witness, which is interesting because she's not writing a novel. You know, it's, it's the closest we get to basically a self-aware character as a character in a novel, right? Like that's almost... The only, only explanation is that she knows she's being written about or something, right? Like that she is a trope in order to bear witness to history. Um, but this is love and the practice of it makes perfect. I don't know if there is a specific meaning. I think that I think that your big experimental gambles, the way that dialogue bleeds into narration or whatever, anything that she does formally, and anyone that anyone does formally in a book, I think that your experiments, your symbols, all that, it has to somehow come back to reality. Like I'm, I'm really not a fan. Like there's a, there's a school of literary stuff out there uh, that, that Tom McCarthy's kind of the center of, where it's like, hey, this novel, you know, Remainder by Tom McCarthy is about sort of destabilizing and dissecting realism in books. But I, I think that's hogwash. I mean, I think he's doing that. But I think Remainder by Tom McCarthy is about a philosophical reality that only this narrative can help peel back. And so for me, that's what I'm trying to get at with, with this line, is that I think Kate Atkinson, she must be trying to get at some philosophical reality, metaphysical reality, even if it's just instinctual. And I do think that lines like, this is love and the practice of it makes it perfect, or Ursula thinks, I'm a, I'm, I'm a witness, I'm here to bear witness. I think that's Atkinson groping for the reality that she's trying to peel back. But I don't know if there's a... I don't know if there's a philosophically deep reality that this novel portrays. I think there is an emotionally deep one, though. I do think there's an emotionally deep reality as far as um, all of these horrible things. You know, it's what you and I always said, honestly. Where I'm going is theodicy, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but but I do think that the emotional the emotional reality of theodicy in my war in my mind. Um, of the problem of evil. If there's a god of love, why is there evil? Right. That's the problem of theodicy. And um, for me, that's what Atkinson is banging her head against with this novel, and actually all of her novels, is there are constantly these, these good humans at the center of bleakly evil things, usually women who are victims totally outside their control, and whatever, Ursula, whatever agency Ursula might have in, her, in her, her individual lives, the recurrence that's happening to her is totally outside of her control. She is in some ways yeah. the ultimate victim. And so for me, like, I don't know that there's a profundity to these statements that I, I feel like they almost invite that, that, that curiosity. But I do think there's an emotional profundity, which is that she's, she's killing herself. She's going through it again. She's choosing to go through all of the horrors of the flu and the potential rape and the blitz or whatever else. She's willing to go through it again if it means she can save her brother, right? That the goodness at the center of their little family makes sort of all of the evilness worth it, which is a sort of, you know, a sort of goodness of God without God mentality. Um, that's, you know, that the good of life does eventually kind of, you know, 
stand still at the hurricane of evil. I don't know. I, I, I'm a little in the weeds, but I, I genuinely, that's, that's actually what I think is that, that there's not a specific profundity she's getting at. It's just an emotional kind of reality that she's, you know, she is unpacking. What do you think it means? Well, I think I'm going to end up sort of repeating you here a bit, so I'm going to try not to do that. But I, I do think that's right. I do think we end up in a situation where, like, her, yeah, she's going back to try to save her brother, who gets killed in many of these timelines over Berlin as a, as a pilot. Um, and that's why she's resubjecting herself to this. And also, like, you know, sort of like she's trying to save the world by killing Hitler, right? Uh, and so she's willing to do, like, be sort of self-sacrificial out of her love for this life and everything that's in it. I do think there's a broader sort of I, I, I do think to the extent that like Adam Roberts is writing like the this and the thing itself to take seriously Kant and Hegel. I do think to some extent this book is a deliberate attempt to try to make sense of the eternal recurrence from Nietzsche. Like what would you live if you actually were doing this and could relive it, you know, and could make different choices like trying to make it better for everybody in whatever way you can. Cause again, maybe everybody is trapped in one of these, right? Like I think there, right. there is at least some, some readings of the novel that all human beings are trapped in this forever. And all you can do is try to make it better for everybody else. Um, and might being sort of the, again, sort of the emotional point. I don't know if Kate Atkinson is trying to make a metaphysical claim about reality saying like, this is actually how it is. I doubt that, but that like, maybe you should live as though it is. So sort of a, a way to take the Nietzschean point very seriously, but not ending up in some sort of, you know, Ubermensch thing. And I think taking Nietzsche seriously while coming to an alter alternate conclusion and, you know, fighting Nazis at the same time is an interesting dynamic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, yeah. If you, if you take this Nietzsche seriously and you're not a Nazi, you end up shooting Hitler is an interesting thought, I think. Um, uh, I'm a little in the weeds, but I, I tend to agree, though, that I think it's more of an emotionally resonant sentence than a philosophically complex one, which is fine. This is not a well, and, work and, of philosophy. And, er and earlier, I guess, when I was trying to say, like, I, I think novels, if they're just talking about other novels, they're boring to me. And they don't always have to have a metaphysical truth to them. But I, I think I think our experience in the world, you know, that, like it, it, it is so hard to get at, I, I think, why it feels meaningful. And it, and it shouldn't. I mean, I think that's actually the point of this book is like, she knows everything in her life is an accident. <laughs> like she's yeah. the one person who is <laughs> sure of that. And yet the connection with her brothers, the connection with her sister, those, you know, next nexus points of meaning continue to exist. And, and also there's a way in which, I mean, I think the book, any book that deals with this kind of life after life has to veer into spirituality. And the book explicitly talks about Buddhism. Um, that maybe yeah. what she's experiencing is different than Buddhism, but even the Buddhist idea, which she doesn't get into, of kind of suffering in a way that feels eternal right until you're enlightened. And there's definitely a Buddhist strain there too, to be honest. Um, but the point being is there's a way in which um, who is more grateful for the good things than Ursula, right? Like there's one life at the very end, there's like a, it was like a really like a, a huge montage of lives. I feel like <laughs> it starts to get a little chaotic, um, but she, uh, you know, she's like in a bar with Teddy who's alive and Nancy who's alive. Right? They made it, and uh, Teddy brought a friend to meet Ursula. Like it's a life we don't ever see unfold. In fact, it could be totally not a life she has at all. We're not sure of that moment. It's a little. I think it's a little unclear if it's like you know almost a fever dream moment. But I do think that's also the the weird humanitarian heart of all of Atkinson's novels is in some ways she, she returns to those kind of like Christian humanism without Christianity ideas, but they're really powerful because she gets to the emotional experience of having a bad life 
and yet still feeling the meaning of you know love, the meaning of gratitude, um, which I really like. I really like her work for that. The other thing I was going to add, because I just I just thought of it, the other evidence in favor of your conspiracy theory for other eternal recurrences, which I thought of a long time ago, I meant to tell you, is that we get point of view chapters from Sylvie and from the doctor. Um, and we basically get it from, oh, no, we basically get it from no one else. That's a good point. Yeah. All right. So case solved. We're right. That, that, that's correct. I mean, you're, right. you're right. And I've, I've, I've helped you solve it. We're, it that's true. <laughs> yeah. I think we did it. So anything else you want to add about this book, Bill? I don't think so. I do want to be clear. I like this book quite a bit. I, I made some slightly snarkier jokes there towards the end, and I want to make sure it's clear that I did still like this book quite a bit. Uh, I I think it's very worth reading. I understand why it was so popular, and I don't begrudge it at all. Like, that makes a ton of sense. And I will definitely be going through and reading some more Kate Atkinson after this, uh, even if I maybe don't reread this one. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I, I said at the beginning, Kate Atkinson's one of my favorite living writers. She is the perfect combination of intelligent but entertaining which in my life especially right now is exactly what i need um this book if i talked about it too casually i think it's probably because i'm coming from a place of like i already love kate atkinson she's already great if you don't know that kate atkinson's great (laughs) she's really good she's really the real deal maybe like you know your tastes don't match up with her but i think she's objectively a great writer absolutely i think this was a fun book as you said at the beginning for us to read after the very busy few months we've all had um I don't think we have any idea what we're reading next. We'll let people know. Uh, we had to get through this one first. Um, and our obviously our schedule for this year is likely to be a little weird just because we took five months to put out our first podcast instead of three or four. But we'll, we'll still, we're still planning on getting everything done. We're just, you're going to have to bear with us a bit. And yeah, Joel, thank you for recommending this book. This was your, your idea, and I'm very glad we read it. And uh, as always, thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. So bye, Joel. See you, Bill. Thanks, man. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.